Well, good morning, church. Had the opportunity to preach in first service, and that was a new experience for me because I usually hang out with second service. You are my people. So good morning. Glad everybody could make their way, make their way in this here, uh, make their way into the second service here this morning. Great to see so many good, uh, friendly faces out there. Not that they weren't friendly in first service, but it's great to have everyone here. Uh, Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. Go ahead and open to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, like we say every week, there's one close by. Feel free to grab one out of the seat back of, uh, of a chair close by you. Uh, if, if you're new to the Bible, it's page 877. That way you don't have to go and look to the table of index there at the beginning. But it's page 877. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those Bibles nearby. It's our gift to you this morning. Really excited to be able to preach here this morning. Uh, my name is Richard Stomps. I get to serve on, on the leadership team uh, here, at, here at Redeemer. And it's always exciting and humbling to be able to bring the word of God here for us. So a little bit about myself. I actually am not from Indiana. I am instead from the great state of Michigan. Yeah, go ahead. It's okay. So some of you that makes really happy. And then those of you to the state with four letters over on the right-hand side, O-H-I-O, that doesn't make us quite as happy uh, to know each other. But I grew up near the Detroit area. I went to a, uh, I went to a small Christian school there. Uh, and when I say small, I think, that, I think that my high school, 9th through 12th grade, was probably somewhere around 75 students or so. My graduating class, I think, at 24, and it was one of the largest classes that I'd ever gone through. So it was a small experience. It's a lot different than my son just graduated from Center Grove, and I think there were 2,600 students or something in there. And the graduation ceremony, I think, is still going right now uh, for it. Uh, it's a little ridiculous. And uh, so it, it, was, it was an interesting experience. Uh, that meant that athletically that we didn't have the same experience that a lot of you have had. There were no Friday night lights because there were no lights, and there was no football team, so we played soccer. And uh, what, what the good news is, is that it opened up opportunity for, for me to be able to participate in some things that I probably would not have, not probably, definitely would not have been able to participate in as a freshman. So I got to hang out with the varsity soccer team occasionally, and attend games, and occasionally play. Uh, I remember one trip of the game, you, you, get, you get guys on a bus, they're going about an hour, and they have to entertain themselves somehow on the bus, and this was in the days before phones. So we actually, I don't know, did things like talk to each other and played games on the bus and things. Uh, so so we, played, we played a game that, uh, that we called Mercy. Now this wasn't like the gentle Mercy you would play with your kids before you'd be at a restaurant while you're waiting for your table to get there where you're trying to slap each other's hands. This was full-fledged, I think some of you might refer to it as bloody knuckles, okay? It was a competition, and the goal was to beat your opponent into submission so that they would say mercy. So the way that it would work, you'd put your hands out in front of you. The other guy would stand across from you, and he would put his hands on his side. And his job was to slap your hand as hard as he could, as many times as he could, so that you would say mercy. So I had this experience. The games are going on. The seniors are going. The juniors and seniors are going. And we're all in the back. We're cheering. And I'm like, man, I would never say mercy. I can't believe you gave in. And so I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there running my mouth as a freshman. And finally one of the seniors looks at me and goes, stomps, you're up. 
And I was like, and so we walk over there, and I'm like, I am never going to say mercy. And he's like, we'll see. So we get up there. He's like, you go first. So he, I go first. I get a few really good licks in on him, and then finally miss his hand, and it's my turn. And we go in, and he starts hitting me, and it's, he's just bludgeoning me to the point that after about five of those slaps that I was, that I knew that I was in trouble. I felt like I couldn't move my hands away from what was happening there. It got so bad that the tears were welling up in my eyes. I felt them running down my face. I wasn't crying because I was a freshman guy. I was just, my eyes were just leaking pain at that point. And he looks at me, and each time, each time before, he'd, before he'd get me, he'd look at me and say, just say mercy. Just say mercy. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and so he finally looks at me, and he, t and he holds his right hand up. And this was in the day where you got the big class rings. You remember those? And he takes this class ring and he turns it around so that the business end is facing my hand. And we got a couple of slaps in there and I'm like, okay, I'm out, mercy, I'm out. My pride had been beaten down. My body had been beaten, been, been beaten down. I finally said the magic words of mercy. I think for some of us, when we think of the term mercy, and when we think about God's mercy, we have a picture of a God who is sitting there bludgeoning us, repeatedly trying to beat us down so that we will say mercy. And that's not the picture that we see in the Bible. Instead, rather, in, instead we see things like this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And so in Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about mercy and who it's offered to. And consider that today. The, uh, the, the theme of our message is this. We are drawn to the mercy of God when we humbly acknowledge that we bring nothing to the table of redemption. So let's open with prayer, and then we'll jump into the passage here this morning. God, we've sung it this morning, but how good are you that you would reach down and show your mercy to us who are undeserving. That you in your loving kindness would extend salvation to those who don't deserve it. God, we are in awe of that. Lord, this morning as we look in this passage, would you warm our hearts to what you have done? Would you draw us in worship to yourself? And Lord, would you demonstrate the mercy that is freely available for all here today? We thank you for it, and we'll trust you for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Let's start there. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have this parable of Jesus. And Jesus is a master storyteller. He's laying this out for the people, and he's trying to capture their attention at the very beginning here. So look, at, look with me in verse 9. The audience for this parable is right here in verse 9. He said, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were very righteous. So who was this? This was the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees. In fact, those religious leaders had escalated their questioning of Jesus and continuously sought to trip him up. And Jesus reserved his harshest rebukes for them. The relationship was tense, to say the least. But notice that here in this verse that Jesus didn't say that they were righteous, but that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He continues in verse 9, he said, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were very righteous, and then how did they treat other people? He, he, they treated them with contempt. Very good. That's the participatory part of today's sermon. So they treated them with? Excellent. Very good. So the Pharisees treated the common person with contempt. The reason for that is that the Pharisees loved position and being recognized. So they would be quick to point out the sin of others so that they could have an advantage position in, over people. They leveraged the sin of others so that they could prosper. So this is the audience that Jesus is talking to at this point. They're following around. They're seeking to question Jesus. They're seeking to trip him up. And Jesus is just like, okay, here we go. I'm going to go ahead and lay this story out here for you, uh, for you this morning. So he, he sets the scene for us here in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Now, they were going up to the temple to pray. This would have been the place of, this would have been the place of any religious gathering, and it would not have been uncommon for people clearly to go there to pray. What would have been uncommon is the people, the participants. The first one was the Pharisee. And then think about this here for a second. The second one was the tax collector. It was the tax collector who went up, and, who went up to pray. So let's talk about the Pharisee first. These were the religious leaders uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the city of Jerusalem. They had constructed a system of religion that focused on, ex on the external behaviors and held everyone to an impossible measure of right. Their religious position provided them the, the respect of the people, substantial wealth, political influence, and responsibility. These were often generational positions, meaning that it was critical for them to maintain them, no matter the cost. Nobody would have been surprised to see the Pharisees going up uh, going up to pray. They were well respected in the community. People looked at them as the measurement for what righteousness was. But then you have the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors then are not the same as tax collectors now. You, don't, you didn't get a letter in from the mail from the Roman Revenue Service, okay? You had people who would show up at your door to collect the tax. And the taxes were from the Roman government. There were so many of them that it was difficult to know exactly what those taxes were. And then, they, and then, the, Ro and then the Romans would actually take people from the area that they were occupying. And they would take those people and say, listen, you go and collect the taxes from your countrymen. And then whatever you get over the top is yours. So feel free to set whatever you want. 
it was very hard to understand what the taxes were. It was almost impossible for, uh, it was almost impossible to understand how much was going to be paid. And so these countrymen would use, uh, would use the authority of Rome and the backing of Rome to collect those taxes. In other words, it's not just if you don't pay your taxes, you get a letter in the mail. It was if you don't pay your taxes, guys are knocking on your door to, make help, to help make sure that you pay your taxes. These tax collectors were, were prospering off of the backs of their countrymen, which made them despised uh, by the people that, that were there. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at other passages where, where Jesus is teaching, like Matthew 18, for instance, there's, uh, there's the idea of sinners and tax collectors seem to be joined together uh, in a couple of descriptions in, in the Gospels. So they were clearly not the people who typically would be going to the temple to pray. So think of it from this crowd's viewpoint. They're like, yes, going to the temple to pray, good. Pharisees, wonderful, right? Tax collectors, pause. That's the thing that shouldn't be there in this scenario here. So we have, this, we have the scene that's been set here in verse 10. And then beginning in verse 11, we see the prayers of each one of these, uh, of each of the people that are, uh, that are involved here. So look with me in verse 11. It says, the Pharisee, we're starting off with the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. Okay. So that's uncommon, right? So even those of you that are here in our room, even if you're kind of separated from people, you're kind of near to people, right? The Pharisees would go into the temple, and why would, they, why would the Pharisee have been separated from everybody? Because they didn't want to be around sinners. They didn't want to be around the common people, the people who didn't live up to their standards. So they were separated from everyone who was there. Continues in verse 11. When we look at the prayer, the, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I dare you at our, uh, it's not deep nights anymore, it's First Tuesday. I dare you to show up at First Tuesday and start your prayer off that way and see how that lands. No, don't, please don't do it actually. The Pharisee, looked around, the Pharisee looked around, and he didn't just physically set himself apart. He spiritually set himself apart. And then it wasn't good enough to say, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He had to start throwing other people in there. He goes, he starts looking around the room and says, like extortioners and people who are unjust and adulterers. And then you can almost feel his eyes come over here to the guy who's separated over in the corner. And even like this tax collector, the real sinners. He continues in verse 12, and he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee starts to list his resume to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, and let me tell you how wonderful I really am. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, is there anything wrong with those spiritual disciplines? No. What was wrong is that they were doing it to be seen by other men and, and at, to establish their, their own personal righteousness in front of those people. They were following that. So Al Mohler is really helpful in helping us to understand what the Pharisees' need is here. Uh, he, he says this, that the Pharisees' central problem is that their righteousness was a self-righteousness. 
not a righteousness that comes from God. Pharisees were evidently traumatized by the understanding that they could not demonstrate righteousness even to themselves merely by obedience to the law. The Pharisees kept adding to the law in order to try to convince themselves that they had actually achieved a form of righteousness that would be acceptable to God. Muller goes on to say this, Throughout scriptures, the Pharisees are shown to commit the fatal error of trusting in their own righteousness. They were right to seek after righteousness, but they were wrong to find it in themselves. The Pharisees' prayer reflects this. It's self-referential and totally devoid of understanding of their sinful state. The Pharisee had somehow left God completely out of the equation. So Jesus comes in, he's sharing this parable, and he shows the religious leaders who they are and kind of exposes who they are to the crowd. And then he contrasts this with this outcast, this sinner that would be in their midst. And in verse 13, he says this, but the tax collector who was standing far off. Now, the Pharisee was standing far, was standing far away from people because of his status, because he couldn't be bothered with everybody. But the tax collector was standing away from people for a different reason. The, the Pharisee thought that he was better than others. The tax collector knew that he wasn't. We have a little bit more about the tax collector here. It says, not only was he standing far off, but he would not lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The shame was real. The guilt was real. The tax collector knew who he was and threw himself on the mercy of God because of it. The difference in his prayer is everything. The Pharisee made it all about his performance. The tax collector made it all about his need. And he begged for God for mercy because he needed a savior. So the question then is, who received mercy then? The tax collector begged for mercy. What was the response to those prayers? Well, look, with, look, at, look with me here in verse 14. It tells, it tells you this. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house. What's the word there? Justified. Rather than the other. So pause. To the Jewish listener at this point, with the cultural religion that, was, that had taken place, with all of the pomp and circumstance and everything that was there, who did they expect to hear was justified? The Pharisee. Think of how shocking this would have been to them to hear the tax collector. Like the bottom of their society. That that one was, was the one who was justified. Jesus continues, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the term justified is a judicial term where God declares guilty people forgiven and acquitted of the charges. But what amazing news and hope that this provides, both to that audience and to us here this morning. The mercy of God that's offered to all is the only thing that can justify us. 
So that's the passage here this morning. It's Luke chapter 18. But what we learn from this is that the mercy of God demands a response. It demands a response for us. And I would, and I would offer here this morning that that response for us should be worship. So who are my hymn people in here? H-Y-M-N people, okay? I see some hands shot up. <laughs> some of you are thinking, we don't raise our hands. I get it. Um, <laughs> I get it. You're the ones last week when DJ was leading us through... Uh, through our song set, and we hit Great Is Thy Faithfulness, and we hit like two verses of it, that you were like, whoa, you perked up a little bit. Your hands may have actually come out of your pockets, uh, maybe like on the belt line. And for some people, you're like, that's not a big deal. What you don't realize is that for us, that's like running laps around the auditorium here, right? So I get it. I love hymns. I think that God has gifted us, gifted us with, a rich, with, a rich, uh, uh, with rich hymns for us to draw back to and to look, and to look at the theology that's, that's in there and the response. So it's, it's, hymns are typically theology and response, theology and response. You see it built into them. Uh, with that in mind, uh, there was a hymn that was written around 1776, 1777. Uh, you've probably never heard of it. It's almost as though there was something else that was going on at that point that was kind of take, capturing everybody else's attention. Uh, it kind of floated in some hymnals for a while, and then it was recently resurrected, and some people put a new tune to it. But the title of the hymn is Thy Mercy, My God. Thy Mercy, My God. It was written by Joseph Stocker. Uh, and I love, this, this has become one of my favorite hymn texts. I love the way that it ties into here as far as, as, far as how we respond to the mercy of God. Here are some of the lyrics for it. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. So think about this in contrast to the Pharisee over here. What was it that was the joy of the heart and boast of the Pharisee's tongue? He, he would hold his resume up, right? It was his own righteousness. But the hymn writer here says that it's the mercy of God that is the joy of my heart, that's the boast of my tongue. He goes on to say, thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affection and bound my soul fast. He continues, thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I found. So back at the beginning, I talked about sometimes we feel as though God is, that our perspective of God is that he's bludgeoning us. He's looking at us and just saying, say mercy, say mercy, say mercy. And the truth is, is that it's way closer to this. That it is dissolved by his goodness that I fall to the ground and I weep for the praise of the mercy that I've found. So we find hope today for the tax collector in this story. But what about the Pharisees? What hope was there for the Pharisees? Is there any hope for the Pharisees? Well, when we look at the New Testament, we have a beautiful example that God has given us of someone who was a Pharisee who became a follower of Jesus. In fact, this is, this is Philippians chapter 3 here. You can feel free to turn there if you'd like. But this is, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. 
For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. And then he continues with this. He's like, okay, you want to float resumes? Let's float resumes here. I was circumcised as, uh, when, when I was eight days old. That's kind of a, that's kind of a weird brag, but we'll, for us, we're not going to jump into the details of that. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the, to the Jewish law. In fact, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So Paul is, say, Paul is saying to them, listen, you want to show resumes? Here's my resume. I can throw my righteousness up there against yours, and you're not going to win. And I needed Christ in his mercy. If you think back to Acts chapter, I think it's 7, Acts chapter 8, uh, where Stephen has, has talked to the religious leaders, the Pharisees that are there, and he's proclaimed Christ to them and their responsibility for the death of Jesus. Those religious leaders responded by charging him and picking up stones and throwing that at him and killing Stephen. And they took their clothes and they threw it at the foot of a man, and that man's name was Saul. And then as you make the transition from, I think it's chapter 7 to chapter 8 there in, in Acts, the very first word up there is that it, it is something along the lines of, it pleased Saul that this happened. In fact, Saul went on to become the chief, one of the chief persecutors of the church. And he would go into homes uh, where Christians were gathering, and he would separate families. He would pull apart families. And he would take men, women, and children and imprison them, persecute them, torture them, and then even was responsible for their death. And he put all of that into, under the guise of religious adherence. That's what happens to us when we start pulling up our religious resumes. We start doing all of these crazy things in hopes that we can somehow come to God as though we can justify ourselves. And it's the mercy of God that changes and engages us and draws us, and draws us to love and to worship him. So Paul continues here in, uh, in, first, uh, I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I once thought that these things were valuable. That religious resume, I thought it was valuable. Persecuting people, yeah, I thought, I thought that that was, going to, that was going to show up really well in my resume. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection 
from the dead. When Paul was confronted with this mercy of God, it literally came face to face with Jesus, was confronted with his need for the mercy of God, and it changed him. It changed his trajectory. In fact, it's a beautiful picture of how God can take, even for someone who, is, who has that pharisaical heart, and change their heart to lovingly follow after and serve, serve God. In fact, Paul went on to write, as we know, about, ha about half of the New Testament. Uh, he planted at least 14, probably closer to 20 churches that we know of, trained pastors up for those churches, and then eventually was called upon by that same Lord that he was worshiping to give his life in the same way for the people that he had to the people that he had persecuted earlier in his ministry. It's a beautiful picture of how God can take, take with his mercy and change anyone. So there's hope for us here today. You can see in Paul's writings how he was always careful to communicate that it's the mercy and grace of God that saves us and sanctifies us. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, not me, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And consider this from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul went from showing his religious resume to celebrating the fact that Christ's righteousness is sufficient. So maybe you're here this morning and you realize that you need this mercy. You keep showing your resume and you realize that you are hopelessly short of God's standard of righteousness. Just like the tax collector, throw yourself in the mercy of God. So some application here for us this morning. Some of you this morning would probably closely identify with the tax collector. In other words, you'd be like, hey, there's no question that I'm the sinner in this parable here, right? We're both sinners, but stay with me here. Um, and if you're not sure, probably the person next to you might be able to help you raise your hand uh, there in identifying that. Let me tell you this morning that there is great mercy for you. Jesus was careful to let the listeners know who walked away justified that day. And it was not the person with the, with the religious pedigree. It was a person who threw themselves on the mercy of Christ. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you identify with the Pharisee. And the question is, is there hope for you? I would say the hope for you is the same hope that Paul had. And it's the same hope that this tax collector had. You don't need your religious stuff, this pedigree. You need Jesus. You need his mercy. And I would encourage you to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. 
We live in a very religious area, <laughs> if there is such a thing. We talk about, you know, being in the Bible Belt, and sometimes I feel like Indianapolis is the buckle on that Bible Belt sometimes. Which means that we grow up in an area where people do the religious things. And often we'll hear people say, hey, I've always been a Christian. Let me lovingly lean in here for you this morning and tell you that you have not. None of us have. We can't do enough good to bridge the gap that we have. We need a Savior. And we need to fall on His mercy. You will never do enough. You will never be enough. The good news for you this morning is that you don't have to try and attain that level of righteousness. Jesus has already been that perfect sacrifice for you. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. The third application point here for us this morning is this. A passage like this can become very familiar. I would bet that the majority of you who have walked in here have sat in a message where someone's taught through this parable. And so sometimes the temptation is for it to become very common, very ho-hum. My encouragement for you this morning is that as you reflect on this, that you reflect on the hope that you have because of the mercy of God. That all of us stood before God as a sinner who had no hope. And it is the work of Jesus Christ who justifies us before God. You often hear us talk about the 4W life here at Redeemer. Michaela just did it in the announcements uh, as we were up here because this is what we talk about. The 4W life is worship, walk, work, and witness. The mercy of God should fuel our worship. Worship is not something that we just do on Sunday mornings when we walk in the door and, there's, uh, and, we, and we just sing together. The mercy of God should be the motivating factor that drives us to worship God in every facet of our being throughout the week. So when we talk about worship for Christ, reflect on the mercy of Christ as the fuel for that fire. When we talk about walking with Christ, let the finished work of Jesus draw us to walk closely with the Lord this week. And then instead of working for Jesus out of duty or out of heaviness, let the amazing grace of God motivate us to serve him, to work for him, out of love and out of gratitude for what he has done. And may the mercy of God motivate our love for Christ and for others to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors as we witness for Christ. The 4W life is not just a slogan or a marketing campaign. It is fueled by the mercy of God that changes who we are and what we do. Follow after Christ. So this morning we're going to be led in the song, His Mercy is More.
And again, I love, I, I love looking at the text of these different songs, but let me just highlight a few things here for us. It says, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sin. In fact, he throws them into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they're many. His mercy, more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. And I love the words here. What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Let me add to that the religious. Our sins, they are many. His mercy, more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they were many. His mercy was more. It is the mercy of God that drives us to worship him passionately with all of our lives. So church, let's stand together and let's worship the God who has mercifully and kindly drawn us to himself here this morning.